As you're being seated, if you'll find your Bible, we'll be in Galatians chapter 2 today. Are you easily sidetracked? Do you get sidetracked easily? As a parent of preschoolers, I can tell you that being sidetracked is just a way of life in my household. The other day I had the two girls with me and we were coming back. I guess it was from the grocery store or something like that. And I had packages and I was trying to get the kids out of the car and get them in. And and, uh, lo and behold, uh, I got sidetracked. The next day I had a note from the Saxe Police Department. And they were so kind. Somebody had called the police and told them that my door to my car was wide open in the driveway. And so they came, they shut it. They gave me some real practical advice, too. They said, in the future, would you please close your door and lock it? I thought that was practical advice. I appreciated it very much. But, uh, you know, uh, uh, I was praying one time with a man. And we were praying. And in the middle of his prayer, he had his phone in his pocket here, and it starts ringing. So I think to myself, you know, he's just going to, you know, hit the button and stop it. But no, he pulls it out, opens it, pulls up the antenna. Hello? Has the full conversation, closes it, stops it, and then just picks right back up in his prayer. I was amazed. <laughs> you know, the Apostle Peter was one of those guys that could get sidetracked real easily. In fact, he was probably the poster child for the sidetrack society. He would walk on water one moment looking at Jesus, and then the next moment he would take his eyes off Jesus and then he would sink. One moment he would be declaring that he would be willing to die for Jesus, and the next moment he would be denying that he even knows Jesus. He preaches the great sermon at Pentecost where people from all around the world hear the gospel message and the gospel begins going out to all nations, and then the next thing you know, Peter's wrestling with racism. He experiences freedom in Christ. And then the next thing you know, Peter's wrestling with legalism. He was one of those guys that frequently got sidetracked. And I know I, for one, can relate to him. Anybody in here have a problem with getting sidetracked? Some of you are only about two minutes into this sermon, and you're already sidetracked, right? So last week, we reached the summit of Scripture. Last week, we looked at the story of the cross, and we walked through the events of the cross. And this week, my goal is to help you understand what the cross means to you. What does the cross mean to me? What is the meaning of the cross? Galatians chapter 2 and verse 16, the Bible says, Know that no one is justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. But if we ourselves are also found to be sinners while seeking to be justified by Christ, is Christ then a promoter of sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild the system I tore down, I show myself to be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I have died to the law so that I might live for God. Now look at this. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Now, there's three things I I want you to take out of this passage and make sure that you download today. The first is this. We are forgiven of sin by faith in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 16 again. The Scriptures say, Know that no one is justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. That word justified comes up over and over and over again within this passage. What does that word justified mean? Well, it's a theological term. It actually has its roots within the legal world, and it's a pronouncement. Imagine the gavel of God falling, and he is pronouncing you not guilty. We have been justified. We have been proclaimed not guilty of our sins. Now, the passage says no one is justified by the works of the law. You are not pronounced not guilty by God because you sowed good karma. You're not innocent because you go to church, because you're part of a good church, because you have the right music on on your iPod. You're not innocent because you follow the golden rule. God doesn't justify you because you can say all the books of the Bible and you even know what Habakkuk is about. You are justified by God. He looks at you and says, not guilty whenever you place your faith in Jesus Christ. We are justified not because of what we do. We are justified because of what God has done. I've heard it explained this way. Religion is spelled D-O. In a religious system, and really if you break down the major religions of the world other than Christianity, they are what we call works-based. And they're spelled D-O. What do I do? Do I learn the scriptures? Do I operate the scriptures? Do I go to the mosque? Do I go to the synagogue? Do I go to the church? What, What is it that I am supposed to do? And if I do enough of the right things, then the sovereign one, however they package that, will pronounce me not guilty. I I will be allowed into heaven. Christianity is not spelled D-O. Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E. The focus of Christianity is about what God has done. To break it down in real simple words, God so loved the world that he sent his son. God intervened into our scene so that we might be redeemed. As a Christian, I I boast not in what I do, but I boast in what God has done. I turn my attention to the cross. I place my faith in Jesus as my Lord, as my Savior, and I throw the totality of me upon him, trusting in him rather than my own righteousness. And God justifies me. I am not guilty because of who Jesus is 
and what he has done for me on the cross. A second truth. When God forgives us, we have new life in Christ. Verse 19 says, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ. Now Jesus described this new life as being born again. He was talking to a man by the name of Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And he tells Nicodemus, for you to be justified, you have to be born again. You, you need a new life. Paul described it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, now pay attention to that terminology, in Christ. We'll talk about more about that in a few moments. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Another word, way of translating that is old things have died. They're gone. And look, new things have come. Question for you. Once I have been saved by God, can I lose my salvation? Now let me answer this for you by saying, think about my son, Bennett. Bennett is one year old. He uh, just celebrated his first birthday about a week and a half ago. I will never forget the night that he was born. It was an incredible night. It's one of those things that I relive often. It's something that I will never forget, but it's also something that can never be repeated. Stacy lets out a big hallelujah, amen. That night can never be repeated. You cannot be unborn. You can't undo being born. Once you're born, you're born. Now, I can make dumb decisions after I was born. I can waste my life. But born is born. Spiritually speaking, Jesus describes being saved as being born again. The old things have died New things are here. Spiritually, your old life, that life before Christ, that life is gone. And the scriptures say a new life has begun. We are alive. We have life in Christ. Thirdly, as a Christian, I have been crucified with Christ. Christ. Now, you're going to have to stick with me a little bit on this point here because we're getting a little bit technical on this. Romans, or Galatians chapter 2 and verse 19, a famous passage of Scripture. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And gave himself for me. I love that verse. It's one of those verses we put on t-shirts. We put it on our refrigerators. I have been crucified with Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. Remember that song? And I no longer live. But what does it mean? I've been crucified with Christ? What exactly does that mean? I, I mean, how many of us have even visited the Holy Land, much less been crucified in the Holy Land? What exactly does it mean to be crucified with Christ? Romans chapter 6 describes it this way. It says, Or are you unaware 
that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in a new way of life. Did you catch the imagery? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in a new way of life. That word baptize, it actually comes from a Greek word, baptismo. And whenever you break down the word, it means to be immersed. Now, in the scriptures, there is such a thing as spiritual baptism, sometimes called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit occurs whenever you place your faith in Christ. At that point of salvation, whenever you trust in Christ as your Lord, as your Savior, the Scriptures teach us that the Holy Spirit immerses us, baptizes us in Christ. So we are spiritually in Christ. When God looks at me, he doesn't just see Lash Banks' life. He sees me in Christ. He looks at me through the lens of Jesus Christ. Now, this is important because spiritually, I have been crucified with Christ because I'm in Christ. Spiritually, I have been resurrected with Christ because I am in Christ. God can pronounce me justified. I am not guilty of my sins, not because of my own righteousness, but God can pronounce me not guilty because he sees me in Christ. This is huge to your understanding of Christianity. That we are righteous before God when we're in Christ. Now, water baptism, believer's baptism, it's symbolic of that spiritual baptism. That's one of the reasons why at Murphy Road, as we understand Scripture, we believe that baptism is a declaration of your faith in Jesus Christ. We, we don't baptize infants. We, we don't sprinkle because the word means to immerse. And so when someone is baptized here, it's a picture of being immersed in Christ. And so the person stands before you in the water, and then they are taken beneath the water, and it's a picture of being buried in Christ. And aren't you glad that Jesus rose again? Because if he didn't rise again, I'd have to leave you under the water, and that, that would ruin the whole service, you know? So, so you are buried in Jesus, and then you are raised again. You have been crucified with Christ. You, you, you live a new life in Christ. And our baptism with water is symbolic of the spiritual baptism that occurs when God places us in Christ. There is nothing more beautiful to me than watching someone when they begin a new, a new life in Christ. I mean, it's, it's just so, it's so exciting. I was thinking about some of the adults in our church that have been saved or baptized and or baptized here over the last few years. I was thinking of Covey Weaver. 
<clears throat> a man in his 60s who's in, in our 830 service, baptized him a couple of months ago, and just watching him come to that point, I was thinking of Stacy Krim uh, and her baptism, Beth Record, Bettina Booth over here, baptized at this church, Bill Dillard baptized at this church. I remember whenever Marcella Callen came to me wanting to be baptized. She had really, the Lord had really showed her her need of Christ, and she came out of a, of a different church background, and she was wanting to be baptized, and, and she was nine months pregnant whenever she talked to me. I said, Lash, I want to be baptized. So in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, she'll have the baby, and then we'll baptize her. She says, no, I want to be baptized this week before I have this baby. I'm like, okay. So, so her husband gets in the water with us, and she gets into the water, and you know she's nine months pregnant, and I, I take her down beneath the water. Now, I can say that I still have not performed an infant baptism because when I got her down beneath the water, the baby was still sticking out. And with a lady nine months pregnant, you don't do this to get it underneath the water. Okay? So, so we baptized her, and that was a picture of new life, in Christ. It's a picture of what the scripture is trying to convey to us when it says, I have been crucified with Christ. We have new life in him. Hey, that's why I'm a pastor, because I love seeing people come alive in Christ. And I love walking with you in this spiritual journey as you try to be like Christ in your home and in your life. I love that adventure. For a couple years, I was a missionary, and I went around to different churches and preached in different churches throughout, throughout the county and tried to help new churches get started. And I loved it. It was fun. But the thing that I never could get away from is just the joy of being a part of a local church where you know people and, and, and you, you, you're there when their kids are born and you're, you're with them during hardships when they're looking for a job or whenever someone passes away and, and you watch people whenever they come alive to Christ and, and they start growing in their faith. There is nothing more beautiful than just watching someone grow spiritually. Now our text reveals today that spiritual growth has an enemy. And I would be remiss, I would not be preaching the entire text if I didn't tell you about the enemy of spiritual growth. Its name is legalism. Now, theologically, legalism occurs when somebody abandons salvation by grace and they begin embracing a salvation by works. When someone starts thinking that through their works, they will find salvation. There's also another more subtle form of legalism that I label born-again legalism. This kind of legalism embraces grace for yourself. I'm saved by grace, brother. I need the grace. And you embrace grace for yourself, but law for everyone else. You kneel before the cross of Jesus Christ and you say, Lord, forgive me of my sin. And then you get up and you put your referee shirt on. You put a whistle around your neck. And instead of following God, you try to play God. It's born out of a need to control. It's born out of a need to contain the Spirit of God, to congratulate yourself it's born out of a need to try to put others down so that you might exalt yourself. 
When you start being a born-again legalist, you reduce the Bible to nothing more than a rule book. The Holy Spirit, that's spooky. Discipleship is just about how much I know. I'll learn stuff, but Les, don't you ask me to go serve or to go do something or to put shoe, shoe leather onto my discipleship. It's just about what I know. When you're a born-again legalist, the church is all about your needs. The church is here to serve me. I sit in the pew spa and just wait for people to come to me. And worship is about my glory. As your pastor today, I beg you that when it comes to legalism, don't go there. Don't go there. The Apostle Peter, he went there one time. Being a young Hebrew boy, Peter was raised to believe that his people were superior in all ways to the Gentiles. And Peter, as he came to understand who Jesus was and what the Messiah was really all about, he began making progress in his legalism. He began getting past his prejudice. Paul says that at one time, Peter reached a point where he was eating and worshiping with the Gentile believers. But then Peter turned down the Bourbon Street of Christianity, and he went into that CD bar labeled legalism. While Peter was at Antioch, he was having a good time with the Gentiles, and he was visited there by a group of people called the Judaizers. When I say Judaizers, you say, boo. He was visited by a group, I'm just seeing if you're awake, the Judaizers. There you go. And they were from the church in Jerusalem, and they had begun teaching something that is heresy. They said, yes, Jesus is the Savior. Yes, he died on the cross, but simply placing your faith in Jesus is not enough. You need to believe in Jesus, but then you also need to be circumcised. All the men say, ouch. And then you also need to embrace the Jew. What's circumcision, Mom? You also need, sorry, ADD moment. You also need to embrace the Jewish law before you're saved. So the Judaizers said, you need Jesus. You need circumcision. <laughs> you need Jesus. You need circumcision. You need the Jewish law. And then if you have those things, then you have salvation. And I can see the Apostle Peter now. He was sitting at a table at the hard 777 barbecue. And he's laughing. And he's eating some pork ribs. And he's enjoying some white bread. And he's even having this time on a Saturday. Off in the background, the church worship band is warming up. And they are playing loud contemporary music. Some of that newfangled music like the old rugged cross and amazing grace. And they're not singing from the hymn scrolls. They're not wearing the church robes. But it's a beautiful scene. There are men. There are women. There are boys and girls. They are there having a good time. There are different languages being spoken. Different nationalities represented. Even different political parties there at the table. And then, ooh, and then like a Wild West movie into that restaurant walk the Judaizers. 
and the band stops. And they look at Peter in disgust. Get over here, Cephas. Peter, is that barbecue sauce on your beard? I bet you have yeast in your bread. Why would you invite that Packabush guy here? Why is the band playing music that's not from the book of Psalms? You don't even have a harp. Where's your harp? How can you worship without a harp? I'm disappointed in you, Peter. You're better than this. Back behind Peter's shoulder, the Gentile believers are saying, Don't go there, Peter. Stand for grace. Have another rib. You can do it, man. Keep standing, keep eating, keep enjoying us. But alas, he caved. And for a season, Peter became a legalistic hypocrite. In the passage just before the pinnacle passage that says, I have been crucified with Christ in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 12, the Bible says, when they came, he withdrew, talking about Peter, he withdrew and separated himself because he feared those from the circumcision party. And then the rest of the Jews joined in his hypocrisy. So that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. Peter's venture into legalism cost him his reputation as a man of God. It ruined friendships that he had with other believers, Gentile believers, and it led others astray. Even Barnabas, the great encourager, the Paul Reed of the New Testament, the man who was just as nice as nice can be, who tried to encourage you in your journey, even Barnabas was led astray. Now we have a saying around here, and that saying is, Grace abounds. Grace abounds. We realize that the grace that God extended to us must be extended to others. And the good news today is that that grace abounds even when you get sidetracked by legalism. Now, I speak to this with great familiarity because as a young man, I fell into the trap of legalism. Now, I knew this. I knew that forgiveness of my sins came only through Jesus Christ. My salvation was real. I had accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I was a follower of Christ. But here was the error of my ways. I thought that the love of God towards me was based upon my performance. So I knew that I needed forgiveness in Jesus Christ, but I began thinking that my growth as a Christian was up to me and that God loved me whenever I read the Bible enough, whenever I attended enough church, whenever I listened to the right music, dressed the right way. Then God loved me when my performance was up to par, but whenever my performance was not as it should be, then God would take away his love from me. And I fell into this legalistic trap. And the legalistic trap always leads you to play the comparison game because the goal in this is to make yourself look better. 
And so what you do is you find those people who are worse than you. And you say, I may not be perfect, but at least I'm not like him. I'm better than him. And in so doing, you take the focus off of God and you start putting the focus on yourself and you start saying, look at me, look at all that I am, look at all that I do. God loves me more than you. Now Paul shows us the way out. In verse 20 he says, the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Dear friend, do not set aside the grace of God. Don't set it aside. The same grace that saves you is the grace that will mature you. What we often do is we bow before the cross in need of grace and we place our faith in Jesus Christ, but then we set it aside. I needed grace for my salvation. But then we go about our lives as if we are the captain of our lives and as if Christ has never died. But Christ died. So that you might live. And notice how Paul describes that life in verse 20. The life I now live in the body. How do I live this life? How do I live the Christian life? I live by faith in the Son of God. I keep looking to Christ. I keep trying to be like Him. I keep acknowledging my need of grace and embracing His grace. I I, I live for Him and I do not set aside the grace of God. The life-changing moment for me came whenever I realized that through Christ, because I'm in Christ, I've been baptized into Christ, I have the approval and the love of the one who made me. Not because of what I do or don't do, but because of what Christ has done. He loves me. And I challenge you this morning, live in that approval. Grow in that approval. Love in that approval. You are a dearly loved child of God. Would you stand with me, please, as we bow our heads and we come to a time of commitment? During this next song, I'm going to be here on the front row. And if there's anything that I may pray with you about, if today the Lord is leading you to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I invite you to come and see me. I want to encourage you and help you in your journey today. Congregation, the musicians are going to lead us in a song. And I ask you to sing forth the song as a prayer to God. Let it come from the depths of your soul. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the truth of your word and we thank you that there is new life in you and we thank you, Father, for the grace that saves us, for the grace that sustains us, for the grace that keeps us until the end. 
Help us, Lord, to never set aside the grace of God. Help us, Lord, to never turn inward and look towards our own abilities, but to realize that I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Lord, I pray that we might live as Christ. I pray, Lord, that in our homes, in our communities, in our schools, in our places of work, that we will be like Christ. I pray, Father, that when people encounter us, that they might see the living water of Jesus Christ flowing within our lives and that that living water might quench the thirst of dehydrated souls. Help us, Lord, to delight in seeing people come alive in you. And we thank you for the cross. We boast not in our own abilities, but we boast in your greatness. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and worship. Amen.